Welcome to today's SNEB Journal Club webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us uh, for our presentation today. I'll start us off with a little housekeeping. If you look in the GoToWebinar tool panel, you'll see the handout for today's presentation. So please download that uh, and follow along. We'll take questions at the end of the presentation, so please type those in the question block uh, and we will moderate them to our presenters today. Uh, when I close the webinar, there's a short survey and we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as any ideas for future Journal Club webinars. And then watch for an email um, probably Wednesday of this week uh, with the follow-up, um, the recording, the CEU certificate that you're earning, as well as we'll include the uh, slides in that uh, follow-up email as well. So I will turn things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, is a teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Rachel. Today I get to present our two presenters. Dr. Hughes is a professor at the Children's Nutrition Research Center, Department of Pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine. Her research focuses on parental socialization of eating behaviors in children. With a background in development psychology and expertise in psychosocial behavior, Dr. Hughes has specifically targeted parent-child relations during mealtimes and their impact on the development of child eating behaviors and subsequent obesity. As a part of this research focus, Dr. Hughes examines general, appetite, general and appetite regulation and their influence on the development of various child eating behaviors. Her research is vitally important because it views childhood obesity from an ecological perspective, combining well-established theoretical perspectives in developmental psychology with current knowledge of child nutrition. She has applied this perspective to diverse, underserved populations who are at a greater risk for childhood obesity. These efforts are critical to the formulation of effective prevention approaches to obesity. Dr. Hughes has extensive expertise using both direct observation and parent report methods to assess parenting in varying contexts. She has been the principal investigator on four large federally funded projects focusing on parenting and feeding, child eating self-regulation, and childhood obesity. Dr. Power is a developmental psychologist who has conducted considerable research on parent-child relationships children's emotional development, and parental feeding styles and practices as it relates to childhood obesity. He has considerable research experience on studies with young children, including infants, toddlers, and preschoolers. His three most recent grant projects involve parenting, children's eating behaviors, and childhood obesity among Hispanic families from low-income levels. A particular interest of his research is the impact of parents on the development of eating self-regulation in young children. Dr. Power is currently Professor Emeritus at Washington State University. I wanna thank them both for joining us today and sharing their work with us. At this point, I can pass it over to Dr. Power and Dr. Hughes. Okay, um, I think I'm gonna go first. So I'm Cheryl Hughes and this is my um, colleague, Tom Power. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a manuscript that we had published in JNEB in 2021 which details the 12-month efficacy of an obesity prevention program that we developed that targeted Hispanic families with preschoolers from low-income backgrounds. So uh, we had a number of collaborators on this project, um, notably a number of people from Washington State University where Tom Power 
was housed at the time, uh, North Carolina State University, Baylor College of Medicine, where I do my research, and also the University of Colorado Medical Campus. So we have no conflict of interest. The research we're talking about today was uh, funded through a NEPA project in USDA, and we received those funds in 2011, and the grant uh, continued through 2016. Uh, regarding nutritional educator competencies, um, we chose these um, there are for the program that we developed. So first to explain um, how to um, plan, select, prepare, and manage foods to enhance well-being of individuals, families, and communities. Second, to describe uh, psychosocial theories of behavior and behavior change and, and apply them to eating behaviors or child eating behaviors and then to apply participatory approaches that enable the target population to effectively communicate, share their experiences, identify personal needs, and manage personal food behaviors. So the overall purpose of the study was to, or of this um, manuscript, was to evaluate the efficacy of a family-based childhood obesity prevention program and this program was a um, research and extension project, as I said, funded by USDA. So we called um, the, our program the Strategies for Effective Eating Development, or SEEDS. And um, the main focus of this prevention program was to teach children to pay attention to their internal cues of hunger and fullness and to encourage their parents to recognize this and support um, these endeavors. The secondary aim was to teach children to learn to prefer healthier, more novel foods, and then again, to encourage their parents to expose their children to these novel foods. So regarding program structure and content, we had seven sessions in groups of eight to 10 families. Uh, we had separate parent and child sessions that went on simultaneously, and then the parent and child came back together for a family session. Uh, the parent sessions targeted five main content areas, and the child sessions uh, targeted two main areas, internal cues of hunger and fullness and promotion of novel or new foods. So uh, the parent sessions, we had an introductory session at the beginning and then a review session at the end. The five content areas by session are, were first uh, child internal cues of hunger and fullness. Then the second was promotion of new foods and uh, food exploration. The third was um, appropriate portion sizes for preschoolers. The fourth was structuring the outside environment and then finally, structuring the home environment. As a part of um, our program, we developed fun and engaging videotapes. And these were pr uh, provided during the parent sessions, uh, partially to enhance the curriculum, but also to encourage the participants to discuss the content areas. Child sessions. So the child sessions targeted two main areas. The first was um, internal cues or child internal cues of hunger and fullness. Uh, we had different activities each week 
using the dolls that are depicted here in the PowerPoint. The facilitators helped children to internalize what it actually meant for them or how it felt to be hungry versus full. And this was enhanced by small stomach pouches um, that were Velcroed onto the children, onto the dolls. Uh, some were full, some were half full, and some were empty. Uh, through these dolls and these experiences, children uh, developed a vocabulary for describing when they were full and uh, were encouraged to communicate and learn how to uh, communicate that with their parents. So the second child uh, session um, approach was promotion of new foods and food exploration. So each week we introduced a different uh, set of foods um, in small cups using a tasting method that was developed specifically for preschool children. So um, these foods were enhanced by stories and games. And through the stories and games, children learn to describe what they think about the foods and the experience or feeling they had of trying and exploring new foods. And then children were able to document these experiences in a food adventure journal that they were able to take home with them at the end of the program. After the parent and child sessions, uh, the mother and child came back together uh, to discuss as a group what they were learned in their individual sessions. Um, we provided a healthy meal and our facilitators participated in the meal uh, along with the parents and children. The parents and children continue, were able to bond or continue to bond with their facilitators and other members of their groups. Okay, so at this point, um, I'm gonna turn this over to Tom um, Power, who's gonna talk about methodological considerations in our study design of our program. Hi, so I am, um, as we as we put this together, trying to think about how it would be most useful to the greatest number of people. And so I and we thought it would be a good idea to to go ahead and talk about sort of the process we went through in terms of designing and then conducting the study in terms of all the various decisions we had to make in terms of the research design. Um, and so what I'm going to do is run through a, a series of questions that we asked ourselves and then the decisions we came to and the reasons behind those decisions. Hopefully that'll be helpful for other people who want to uh, develop an evaluation plan for a project like this. Um, so the first question, of course, is, is, is choosing a research design. And we wanted to know whether we would choose an experimental design versus a quasi-experimental design. Um, this was really the first program that we knew, I think there was one other, uh, that really looked at childhood obesity prevention through trying to encourage the self-regulation of eating. And, and given that no one really done a study like that before, or there's really no data on that yet, um, we thought it would be good to do a um, randomized control trial to really see if, if the, the program had an effect on children's obesity. Um, the advantages of doing, a, and do it at multiple sites as well. So the advantages of doing a, an RCT is that you have a control group, you know, so you can see whether uh, your group changes versus the control group over time. It allows for causal influences because people are randomly assigned to groups and you can control implementation quality in the sense that um, it's a highly controlled situation um, with lots of resources devoted to making sure the program is implemented with fidelity and, and effectively. Um, disadvantages of an RCT that probably aware of, I mean, one is generalizability. I mean, we had lots of resources, as Cheryl said, we had this nice grant from USDA that allowed us to hire and train facilitators to, to pay participants 
um, for the assessments, you know, to have a, a large research staff available when we are collecting our data. And most people, when they implement a program like this, don't have that, all those resources. So the question is, would the results of a, kind of this highly artificial sort of implementation generalize to more typical implementations of the program? So that's often a, a problem people cite when they talk about RCTs. And the second thing is, and this is often a problem with participants, is that the control group in, in our case got no treatment. And so people sign up to be in this program and then they're told, oh, by the way, you have a 50% chance of being in the program. Otherwise, all we're gonna do is have you fill out a bunch of questionnaires and you know observe your kids in different situations. And um, that a lot of times, um, you know, agencies don't really wanna support that kind of activity. They want everybody to, to benefit from being involved. And so in terms of addressing these issues, in terms of generalizability, we decided to really do this program in a variety of locations. So even though we had resources more than you typically would have in a, in a typical implementation, we did it in a, in a range of places, um, very typical of where one would see programs like this. So we did um, them in a bunch of um, Head Start setting, settings in Houston, uh, where Cheryl is, and then you know I'm at Washington State University, and we um, did it through um, the extension programs in the central Washington state, uh, which is, um, you know, and we did a typical, you know, we did it in the extension office and we did it much like one would do a typical uh, rural county extension implementation. So we tried to, even though it was an efficacy trial um, and we had lots of resources, we tried to make the implementations as much like a real world implementation as you typically see. With the exception of the massive amount of assessments we did on people, you wouldn't see that in a typical implementation. Um, in terms of the issue of the control group getting no treatment, you know, a way you can often deal with that is to have a 12-month a waitlist control. So that way, you know, people get the program, you know, uh, at, even the people in the control group get the program after we're done with the, the initial assessments. The problem is though, we really wanted to see whether it affected childhood obesity 12 months later. So we would have had to wait 12 months to do a waitlist control, and given the, the timing of the grant and everything else, we weren't in a position to do that. So what we did instead was, and, and, and I was actually surprised how well this worked, that we, we really worked with our facilitators to come up with a script that would describe, in terms of how they present the study to participants. Um, and they would say to them that, you know, this is a really exciting program, it's brand new, we need to evaluate it. The, really the best way to evaluate this program is to have half of you get the program and half of you not get the program. We'll randomly decide who gets the program. Um, and, uh, and you'll really be helping future families as you know, uh, you know, even though you may not be one of the people that got the program yourself. Um, and we will, of course, pay you for all the assessments that you get involved in, which I think was a pretty big motivator in this case. And it turned out we had very little resistance um, with the low education a sample to this approach. So we, you know, we, we obviously had buy-in from the extension office and the head starts, which is often a challenge, but um, we dealt with that to the problem the best we could. So the second question is, what kind of control group should we have? Um, that we had initially considered what's called an attention control. An attention control, you know, because it could be that just being enrolled in any program may have some impact on, um, on your outcomes you're interested in. For example, in the in in my background section psychology and in 
clinical psychology, it's it's standard practice to have what's called an attention control because if you you have groups, like let's say you're doing a group therapy kind of intervention, um, just the fact that people get together with a group, regardless of what they talk about, may in fact um, you know reduce their level of anxiety, depression, and other psychological symptoms. So it's possible that just being involved in some kind of group um, setting could be contributing to the results. And it really did. So one could do an attention control. We initially thought about doing a food safety attention control. So the idea was, is that we would have a very similar program, videotapes, same number of sessions, same number of people, um, and talk about food safety and not talk about you know, child self-regulation or eating new foods, that sort of thing. Um, as we looked into that more, we realized that in order to do that, we would have to make a whole other set of videotapes, a whole other set of, you know, whole new curriculum, um, we'd have to take half of our grant budget, basically, in terms of the first year, and devote it to the, the food safety control. And we, the more we talked about it and thought about it, we thought, well, just being with a group won't necessarily lead people to teach their children how to regulate their intake um, or to promote the trying of new food. So we decided to go with what's called the treatment is usual control, which is actually your typical control in most kinds of this, um, RCTs. Um, the third question was who should we evaluate this program with first? Um, we'd actually, when we developed the program, we wanted it to be a program that could be useful to all parents, really, um, that at least speak English and Spanish. So we developed English and Spanish versions of the program um, with our videotapes. We had um, parents from multiple ethnicities. Um, we had a Spanish videotapes as well as English language videotapes. We had African-American families and we, Latino families and European American families um, on our videotapes. We made it the language and the lessons simple enough so that you know it, it, we're kind of like at the third grade level. So it's something that that most parents could benefit from regardless of their level of education. So we developed this general program because because the research suggested that regardless of ethnicity and social class, the same kinds of practices seem to be related to um, trying new foods and promoting self-regulation. So we um, this we we wanted, but we on the other hand we you know we didn't so we but we well we well the question was um, who should we do the program with first? Sorry, uh, we decided to target families with low income because children from these families are at, at much greater risk for obesity for childhood obesity. But the question was how homogeneous should our sample be? Um, should we get families of all one ethnicity? Should we get a range of ethnicities? Um, the advantage of a homogeneous sample is that you have less um, within group variability in your outcomes, and that would lead to greater power to, to find effects. Uh, the advantage, obviously, for heterogeneous samples, a more diverse sample would be to have gen greater generalizability to a wider range of people. Um, we decided to, because this is the first evaluation of this project, we wanted to um, maximize our power. So we decided to use um, a homogeneous sample. And it turned out that um, Spanish-speaking Americans, you know, mostly predominantly first-generation immigrants from Central and, and uh, Mexico, Central America and, and Mexico, tend to have some of the highest obesity rates in America. So we decided to focus on them. And we also had access to large numbers being in Houston and in um, Central Washington. Central Washington's an agricultural area of the state, and they have a 
large um, Latino population there as well. So we um, we did, like I said, in, in two locations. Um, okay, so, um, so the next question would be, are choosing the number and timing of assessments. You know, this is a longitudinal study. We wanted to follow up over time, like I say, demonstrate by 12 months that we had an effect on children's obesity. Um, clearly, we need pre and post test assessment. You know, begin. We actually did the first assessment before we even randomly assigned people. That way, everyone's in the exact same situation. Then we randomly assigned them. And at the end of the program, we wanted to see did the mothers learn? You know, what we were trying to teach them. Did the kids learn what they were trying to teach them? Um, following, following, choosing follow-up time points is more tricky. Uh, it involves balancing theoretical and practical concerns. Um, if previous research or theory helps identify important times for follow-up, then um, you should choose the time points with these in mind. Um, most definitions of evidence-based programs require sustained effects after 12 months. So we thought it would be important that we put a 12-month um, assessment in there. And if we had the theoretical guidance for a third time point, we could do so, but we really didn't. So we chose six months because that's halfway between, you know, the end of the program and 12 months. And that would allow us to examine change over time, as well as have contact with these families over this year so we don't lose them, especially with a low-income population. It's pretty easy to lose people. And so we wanted to maintain contact with them over the year. So we chose the six month as our intermediate time point. Choosing measures is always a difficult decision because on the one hand, um, you know, we want to get as thorough an assessment as we can. On the other hand, we don't want to overburden our participants and, and have, you know, problems with the validity of our responses because people are tired and, and responding randomly or whatever. Um, the, the best approach to choosing measures involves measuring both outcomes, let's say in this case, child weight status, as well as processes, and I'll talk about that in a minute, um, to use multiple measures and methods. The more different measures you have of the same thing and the more different methods you use, the more confidence you can have in your conclusions. And you also want to choose measures that are sensitive um, to change over time that people have used in other kinds of um, intervention studies. So in terms of our process, so in terms of choosing measures, it's important to sort of work out the process model. If you go to the the article that um, that we talk about here, well, it cites an early article, which was our methods paper, which was also in JNM, and we have our logic model in there. So the logic model is a nice way of sort of identifying what your processes are and what you expect to be, what your intervention is, what your resources are, what your intervention is, what your expected outcomes in, and what your impact are. Um, and embedded within that logic model is a process model. And we really had two process models, one for eating self-regulation, one for encouraging trying new food. So in terms of, and you want to make sure you measure aspects of um, each of these, you know, each of the process in your, um, in your study design. So we needed to measure feeding, and the three feeding things we were looking at was structure of the eating environment, responsiveness to the child's um, uh, cues of hunger and fullness, and then also kind of coercive control strategies that work, I guess. So the structure and responses promote children being more um, to higher levels of self-regulation of eating. Use of con coercive control could actually interfere with self-regulation because you're saying, finish what's on your plate. Even the child says they're full, they're learning to pay more attention to what's out there in the environment than their internal cues. So coercive control is a negative um, predictor of self-regulation. 
structure responses are positive. So we want to make sure we measure all three of those things. We wanted to measure child's, children's eating self-regulation because we thought that feeding would influence self-regulation, which would then influence the child's subsequent weight status. In terms of trying new foods, um, considerable research shows now that, that especially if food is bitter or <clears throat> different looking, that the children need multiple exposures to a food before they're willing to, to e even try it. Yeah, I mean, multiple exposures on separate occasions, you know, so like maybe eight to 12 exposures over eight to 12 different days to get to child try something that looks funny or smells funny or, or, <clears throat> or tastes funny. Um, so we wanted to uh, have a measure that we were teaching parents to encourage their children to try new foods by repeated presentation. We're also teaching parents to help their children explore foods. There's some research suggests that if children explore these unusual looking or smelling or tasting foods, that it might increase their willingness to try them. So we need to measure the parenting strategies, we need to measure the child's willingness to try new foods, as well as the child's weight status later. So um, in terms of the feeding measures, we use the food parenting inventory, which we basically, Susan Johnson knew that um, in Denver, had, uh, had worked with um, Leanne Birch on the development of the original um, child feeding questionnaire, the CFQ, which people have used for years and years. So Susan had expanded that questionnaire somewhat, and we expanded it even more for this study uh, and to cover all the different aspects of our intervention. So in terms of the kinds of things we're trying to teach parents to do. So encouraging um, trying new foods, um, promoting structure and um, responses to child's um, input, as well as this course of control strategies. We also use the caregiver's feeding styles questionnaire, which is one that Cheryl and I developed, that gets at feeding style. So the, the first measure, the food parenting inventory, gets at food, feeding practices, like what are the specific things you do. The um, caregiver's feeding style questionnaire actually looks at the general overall style, kind of the emotional climate of the feeding. And it measures the responsiveness to the child, how demanding they are the child be, and then, like I say, this general feeding style. Um, we've done lots of studies show that that's um, indulgent feeding style, for example, is associated with obesity and low-income families. Then we had a feed feeding knowledge questionnaire we developed to assess the the constructs that we were teaching people in the program. So that was very spe uh, program specific, and we developed a measure of feeding self-efficacy about both at home and away from the home in terms of how much confidence parents have and their ability to, to promote healthy eating in their child. In terms of child self-regulation, we, oh, I, I should say for the, the feeding, we relied totally on parent self-report measures. And ideally it's nice to use multiple methods, but unfortunately um, we didn't have the resources to actually observe meals. And some of our other studies, we observed parents feeding their children as well. And it's, it's a nice way to kind of get some convergence between self-report and observation, but we didn't have the, the resources to do that here. So we relied on one method, but multiple measures for parenting. In terms of the children, we we're able to do um, multiple methods and measures. So we looked at the literature on children's eating self-regulation, and it turns out that um, there's sort of three major approaches that people have used over the years. Uh, one that Susan Johnson and, and uh, Leanne Birch had developed with these compensation trials, uh, which is um, looks at the degree to which children, you give the children a, a preload before they eat, and uh, you do it on two separate days, 
and you see do they when you see how much they eat during the meal and one day the preload has lots of calories one day the preload has zero calories and you want to see do they compensate how much they eat at the meal um, based upon the calorie content of the preload so it's a way of looking at the total calories across preload and meal to see is there a compensation going on so are they self-regulating so if they you know they drank the kool-aid that was full of calories um they're not that hungry anymore and so you expect them to eat less and so you want to see are they actually doing that or not we also use the eating in the absence of hunger task which liam birch and, and jenny fisher had developed which is um children eat a meal they're full and then after this meal when they say they're full you give them an opportunity to eat lots of sweets um and and you see how many calories they eat in the absence of hunger and then we use the um the uh the child eating behavior questionnaire is a well-validated questionnaire. It's been used by many, many people. And it's it's maternal reports of children's eating behavior, and three of those subscales seem relevant to self-regulation. So tied to responsiveness, the degree to which the mother <clears throat> believes the child stops eating when they're full. Food responsiveness, the mother's perception of the child's ability to want to eat all the time, regardless of whether they're full or not. And then emotional reading, which is, you know, is eating um, in response to negative emotions. Okay, then we, um, in terms of the children's willingness to try new food, we had two different measures. We had a tasting panel that Susan develop, uh, Johnson had developed, uh, where, as Cheryl mentioned, we have um, tiny portions of various new foods, and we look at children's willingness to try these foods you know, in a standard situation. We also had the mothers fill out a food preferences questionnaire, which also got at how often their children had tried new foods. So we had multiple methods and measures again. And for the, in that domain. Child weight status, we assessed in the, the standard way, you know, in terms of measuring the child's height and weight, computing BMI percentile scores, and then assigning uh, children to the four weight statuses based on CDC guidelines. Um, we had very few underweight children, so basically it's these, these three categories. So next, next research question is deciding on the, the sample size. Uh, that ideally you should do power analyses to determine the desired sample size you need. So you might look at the size of the expected effect, and then you look at um, the type of statistics you're using, and you figure out what's the best sample size that would maximize the power. And, and you know, obviously when we wrote the grant, we did a power analysis to figure out what we should ask for. We use the, the program called the G Power Program. Um, and it gives us the minimum sample size for identifying a condition by time interaction in repeated measures analysis of variance. So two conditions and four time points. So what we have are the control group, four time points, the intervention group, four time points. And, you, and what you predict, of course, is that the control group won't change and the intervention group will change, either go up or down, depending on what we're measuring. And so this, and the fact that the condition effect, or the time effects are different for the two conditions means the statistical interaction between condition and time is significant. And so we looked at the, the power, the sample size we need into, in order to identify such an interaction. We had to do different power analyses for different variables because they had different patterns of correlation over time. So for example, uh, BMI, children's BMI is highly stable over time. Even, even when we were trying to change it, you know, it's correlated 0.9 between the different time points. You know, whereas some of the other things, like their satiety responses, things like that, change quite a bit. Um, so you have to run, so when you have a multiple repeated measures analysis, 
you have to take into account the correlation of the variables with themselves over time. And that means you have to do different types of power analyses depending on the nature of those correlations. We also had to correct for in our power analyses the nesting and participation of participants within classes. So we had, you know, as Cheryl said, eight to 12, I think, mothers in each class. And since participants are nested within classes, you know, your statistics typically assume that every person is sort of randomly selected and that one person's response isn't going to be dependent on another person's response. But the fact that these 12 people are in the same class, they may be more similar to each other than people in different classes. So you have to take that into account and that um, basically means you need more subjects. Uh, and so the power analysis we adjusted for nesting. Okay, so we ran them before we started studies and said to determine the sample size. It's also good to run them when you're when you're done to see how much actual observed power you have. Um, we recruited a sample of 255 families based on the initial power analysis. So they were, you know, um, randomly assigned to the two groups. And um, when we did our final analysis, we looked at our smallest end for any analysis, which is 107. And that provided 81% power to detect a, a small effect size. So we felt pretty confident in our effect size, um, in, in the power, sorry, of our analysis. Okay, we also did some things to, to help um, during the actual implementation, or right before and during the implementation, to ensure the, the quality of the data we collected. And these are things one needs to really take into account when they're doing a, a program like this. Um, we want to make sure that the facilitators were trained well in the program, so we had a two-day in-person training sessions, pre-COVID, way pre-COVID, uh, and um, we uh, did two follow-up training sessions as well as we had weekly communication with facilitators to ensure that the uh, that they understand the program and answer their questions. Um, you know, there are individual differences between the different facilitators, and they become really queer when you start to to meet with them and talk about it. But we um, did pretty thorough sort of um, training to make sure that people understood what they should and shouldn't do. Um, we had fidelity assessments. So you want to make sure that the program is being assessed with, um, implemented with fidelity. So we developed fidelity checklists. Facilitators at the end of each session would fill out a checklist. Did they do all, did they cover all the different parts of the program? Then we trained research assistants to conduct observations of the, the sessions. And for 39% of the sessions, we also had the research assistant observation fidelity. And fidelity rates were, were very high. Um, and again, a lot of the details of all this you can see in the article. Also, for the assessment of sessions, we wanted to make sure that the data that we were collecting for the pre, post, six month, and 12 month was high quality. And we um, wanted to make sure that, that we didn't bias them in some way, you know, like the Control group will get one set of assessments, and the, even though everyone got the same assessments, if one group got, you know, if the control group got in separate sessions than the intervention, something about those sessions might have influenced the outcome. So we made sure that we did our assessments with the control and prevention participants together. We had trained bilingual research assistants who were blind to the participants' conditions, so they didn't know who had gotten the classes and who had not, and they helped in. Um, uh, collecting the assessment data. They also provided support um, for participants when, with limited literacy skills. A lot of these, not a lot, but a significant portion needed some help with the, um, 
with the Spanish and the questionnaire. Okay, we um, did lots of things to to maximize participant retention over time. As I said, in a low income easy to lose participants. And so we use multiple strategies that are listed here. Um, uh, and these are things that people typically do with low-income families. The idea is just to get as much information as they can about how to find them if we suddenly can't find them and, uh, and maintain contact over time, including birthday cards and, and texts every couple of months to maintain some continuity. Okay, then the final question would be choosing the statistical analyses. Um, several important factors are important when you do that. Like I mentioned before, the first is the fact that participants are nested within class classes so that affects the standard error of your estimates so you want to make sure that that you um uh take that into account in the statistics you use the longitudinal design again you have correlated data over time within subjects you want to take that into account and then um we also had the fact that some of our outcome variables were continuous like how much do they use coercive practices and others were categorical like what feeding style did they overall feeding style did they use so we had to have different types of analyses for continuous versus categorical variables. We first, you know, you do, we want to look at the um, distributions of our continuous variables to look for uh, violations of normality. We had to do a couple transformations on a couple variables, but most of them were okay. Um, then we had to look at what's called the interclass correlations for all continuous variables. So <clears throat> the interclass correlation tells you how correlated participants within a given class are on the average with each other in terms of the response on that variable. So it compared to, to everybody else. So the idea is we want to see, you know, is being the member of a specific class gonna have you lead to responses that are similar to other members of that class compared to everybody else in the sample. So the interclass correlation looks at how correlated people are within a particular class. Um, and that's why you correct. That's why you do the nesting to correct for that those kinds of um, interclass correlations. It turns out that our interclass correlations were very low. There were a couple of variables they were higher. I think the highest one was for um, uh, children's eating the absence of hunger because they, you know, they we did it when we when we assessed children's eating the absence of hunger. We put children in little cubicles in the classroom and they did the 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 task individually, but we they could, probably could hear each other. So I think that I don't they could hear each other. And so we had a slight, you know, correlation between kids within classes. And I think just, you know, some classes you got more kids eating than others. Um, but again, the correlations, I don't, oh shoot. Uh, the numbers were very low. Um, they ranged from 0 0.00 to 0.11. So I think that was the units and goes to 0.11. So even that's a very low correlation when you think about it. But it's still important to control for that, even when they're small, because it can affect your outcome. And we also examine the differences between the control and the prevention groups on the demographic and pretest variables. So we wanted to see whether or not a randomization worked. The idea of randomization is that you know the group shouldn't be different um, on all the relevant variables if you randomly assign them. Um, we found that there were no differences um, between them on both the demographics and the pretest variables. We also looked at um, the data from mothers had data at all or children had data at all four time points um, versus people who dropped out of the study or missed a time point and we looked at how those groups differ and we only found one out of 48 i think um, differences there so less than we'd expect by chance alone so we really didn't have any evidence of any kind of differential dropout which was good okay so our primary analyses 
we use multi-level analyses within the SPSS mixed models program and allows you to control for nesting. Um, we looked at the significance of the, the condition by time interactions, controlling for the child's age, you know, the kids were three to five, uh, the child's sex, about we had about half boys and girls, and um, the child's BMI Z-score pretest. So we wanted to take that into account since that's been shown to be related to lots of these variables. Uh, we followed up significant interactions, so condition by time interactions with simple main effects analyses. It basically means you look at for the control condition, did they change over time? For the intervention condition, did they change over time? Um, and then if we had a significant time effect, then we compared the four groups to each other, you know, pre-test, post-test, six months and 12 months. So the uh, for the categorical variables, we did um, separate chi-square analyses. Uh, so, which we ran for the pretest and the post-test feeding style, um, and then uh, oh, I'm sorry. And we also looked at at six months and twelve months too. I should uh, yeah. So pretest, post-test, six and twelve months. Sorry, I made a mistake on the slide here. Um, for child weight status, we use multinomial regressions, and so we have a multinomial regression. It's kind of like a, like a logistic regression allows you to predict two categories. A multinomial regression allows you to predict three categories. And so we had um, three levels of our dependent variable, healthy, overweight, and obese. Um, and we looked at separately at six months and at 12 months to see whether the program would affect the distribution of children in the different weight classes. Um, and looking for, again, uh, condition main effects, controlling for the same um, uh, for child age, sex, and BMI score. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, okay. So that that allowed us to look at the effects of the of the program on child's weight status. Oh, we that we thought it was a better measure than BMI Z score because there's a wide range of what's considered healthy weight. It ranges from five percent to eighty five percentile, and so all those kids get grouped together, and so you've got the healthy weight, the overweight, and obese, and that the results were much clearer when we looked at the actual. Um, weight statuses, which is really what we're interested in. We don't care if a kid moves from 40th percentile to 60th, that's still healthy. Okay, um, a big issue is controlling for type 1 error, and we, we have all these measures, we're running all these analyses, we could have some chance findings, right? And you can accomplish this by using more conservative p-values. The problem is, of course, if you correct for type 1 error by using a more conservative p-value, let's say you use a 0.01 level versus a 0.05 level, then you lose some power, right, which is type two error. So, um, so it's it's a balance, you know. Um, how do you balance these two with each other? We use what's called the unweighted Bonferroni method. Basically, you take the critical value of 0.05, which is what we typically use. You divide by the number of comparisons for a given assessment. Um, in a paper in '95, Schaefer argued that when you correct for what's this is called family-wise error that you should correct um, separately for each family of hypotheses. And so what we did, we decided that um, families were a set of measures for each, um, the families were defined as a set of um, measures derived from each outcome assessment. And so for each outcome assessment, like eating the absence of hunger, um, compensation trials, feeding, you know, uh, food parenting questionnaire, whatever, we divide by the number of measures that that particular, or I'm sorry, the number of measures that that measure, that sounds very, a oh, number of variables that measure 
uh, produces, divide that 0.05 by that number. So for a very a questionnaire that has 10 scores, we would take 0.05 and divide by 10, right? Um, this led to critical values ranging from 0.003 to 0.05, depending on analysis. And again, you can look at the article for more specifics. Um, we also looked at, did some secondary analyses to see if there were monitoring effects of child age, sex, BMI status, or location. So we wanted to see whether or not the program worked equally well in both places, if it worked equally well for boys and girls, for children of different weight statuses, or for children of different ages. And so we did this by looking at the moderator by condition by time interactions. We also did some dosage effects to look at um, did the number of sessions that parents attended, or children attended, did that predict the outcomes? And I'm getting a little short on time, so I'm going to get into the specifics, but you can look at the article how we did that. Basically, you just replace condition with um, the, the uh, number of sessions they attended. So, as I said, I really focused this part of the presentation on methods versus results. So, um, I'm not going to talk about the results in detail. I encourage you to look at the article to get more specifics about that. Um, but I want to talk about some lessons we learned as a result of the of our results. So, I'm going to briefly summarize the results. So, um, we did find that the program had um, significant effects on on um, beating knowledges, practices, styles, and self-efficacy. Across all of our different measures, we had lots and lots of findings in terms of the, for the mothers that clearly they'd learn what, what we were teaching them and they seemed to be applying them at home. And, and those effects, most of them lasted for the whole 12 months. Um, but this was, like I said, primarily first-generation Spanish-speaking Hispanic mothers. Um, the program, and this was the big thing, it showed significant effects in child weight status. So 12 months, children in the prevention group were less likely to have overweight or obesity. And that was, um, we were quite excited about that because we'd spent a lot of time and money to try to see if we could get a program that actually, because so many of these childhood obesity prevention programs don't work. And this one did, and I think it's because it involved the families, because it was fairly intensive, and because um, it looked at um, on the, the issue of self-regulation. Pro the program location did not moderate the results. It was easily successful in big Houston and kind of medium-sized Pasco. It's not tiny. But, um, and, uh, you know, because we developed the program for multiple race and ethnicities, future work should examine its um, efficacy in other populations. Our recruitment retention strategies were moderately successful. As you can read in the article, we recruited 255 initially few more in Pasco than in Houston. As you see, our retention rates dropped over time. So we had 84 of the percent at post-test, 60%, 66 at six months, and 61 at 12 months. These are, this is very typical of what you find in, in low-income samples. I mean, especially in Pasco, I mean, these are agricultural workers, although many of them lived in the Pasco area, they would go other places for, to harvest different um, fruits and vegetables at uh, different times of the year. They just, we had to coordinate all the classes to make sure that it was, you know, with the, the harvest and planting and things like that. Um, and people move, you know, and it's hard to find them. So, um, but fortunately, our dropouts and completers didn't differ on any of our demographic or pretest variables. Um, so there really wasn't any evidence that there was selective differential dropout. Um, wait, oh, sorry. Unfortunately, and this was our biggest disappointment, the, uh, the child measures didn't 
we had very few effects on the child measures. We we did find that at, at post-test and a trend at, at um, 12 months that children in the intervention group were more likely to have tried more vegetables, but that was the mother's reports. <clears throat> the compensation trials, the Emancipation Hunger and Tasting Panel, we didn't find any significant condition effects. And we talk about some of the reasons for that in the article. Um, these may not be the best, well, the compensation trials seems to be a good group measure, but not an individual difference measure. And um, we can talk about the questions if you want later. Um, the eating the absence of hunger measure, I think these kids are so excited, these low-income kids are so excited to get all this food <laughs> that it affected um, their response to the, to the protocol. And then all kids ate more than they typically would have. Um, the tasting panel, interestingly, almost every child tasted almost every food. And we think it's these Head Start programs have done a great job of teaching kids to try new food. So um, maybe you know, we need to modify the test somehow to make it uh, a better task, individual difference measure. There are no effects in the child eating behavior questionnaire, although there's some there's evidence there's a pretty strong genetic component to that, those, in these eating styles of children, and so maybe it wouldn't have been the best measure. Unfortunately, these are the only measures out there at the time, and even today, there aren't really um, many better alternatives yet. Um, so, conclusions, the program shows promise for changing maternal feeding practices, childhood obesity prevention, it should be replicated in other populations, and, and as I said, we need to think about ways to um, um, measure self-regulation of eating in children as outcome and process variables to sort of fill out our model and show that that the feeding practices affected the self-regulation affected the uh, the child's obesity status so that's it for my presentation um i know there's a way i can stop sharing my screen whoops but my i apologize i'm not familiar with this system uh, okay. Shoot. Stop sharing screen. Here we go. So Excellent. is it gone? It's gone. I, I can't see what y'all see. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. If people have questions, they're welcome to type those in the question box and I'll be able to share those with our presenters. Um, so the first question I had, um, you mentioned dropout rates. How did you handle non-completion? Did you do an intention to treat analysis or did you only assess completers? And then um, if you could talk a little bit about the decision-making behind that. Yeah, so it did do an intention um, to treat analysis. So regardless of how many um, program, how many classes people attend, even if it was zero, if they were in the intervention group, um, they got treated as an intervention person, which is a subject. And so, we, yeah, we did do the intention to treat analysis. Um, you know, we considered imputing missing data. Uh, we had about 40% missing data at 12 months, and there's a lot of debate about imputation missing data when you have that much missing data. Um, a lot of people list 40% as a number that probably may not want to do that. So we thought in this case, we would just go with the, the people that had um, all, you know, didn't have any missing data. And um, as I said, there was no differential uh, dropout. So, you know, I think we just had a more conservative test of the effects of our program. But yeah, so the intent to treat analysis is that, you know, regardless of whether they get the program or not, if they were assigned to this group, we should treat them as an intervention um, person. And we did do that. 
Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Um, so you've been through this this process once, and it was so neat to learn about your methods and how you decided which methods you would choose. Um, you mentioned doing this in other populations. Um, if you were to repeat this study in other populations, is there anything you would do differently if you were going to do this project again? Cheryl, did you want to answer or should I? You can start. I, I was going to say that we actually um, have used um, the videotapes from this and a lot of the content in uh, a second USDA grant that is just finishing with um, uh, other than just Hispanics. And we also have a new grant where we're going to, we did online in the second one, but we're actually going to implement this in, um, in Texas. So through extension programs through Prairie View A&M. So there is, you know, we are continuing to use this program in other populations. But Tom, can you want to say something about what you think we should have done differently? <laughs> yeah, and we had, I mean, we really had developed it with this idea for multiple populations. In fact, in our Spanish videos, for example, we have actors who are Puerto Rican and, and South American and Central American and Mexican. So we get different, um, or Mexican American, so we get different um, accents and, and language usage and stuff like that. We wanted it to really appeal to a wide range of people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the one that Cheryl mentioned in Prairie View A&M, we're going to be doing a large number of African Americans. We haven't done that yet. Um, as she said, we did do it with um, through extension in Colorado and Washington, and just not not the child sessions, but the parent sessions, uh, both in person and also with an online version of the program. In fact, the program seemed to work a little better uh, for the English-speaking participants. So um, whether they were Hispanic, well, no, wait, was it that? No, no, it was, it was for the, uh, that other program worked better for the, the, the non-Hispanics than the Hispanics, regardless of the language they spoke, which really surprised me, and we're still trying to figure that one out. Um, so if you were, if you were, uh, I, mean, I hate to say this because this may be wrong. I just was looking at some of the data the other day and I might be remembering wrong. But I think it was that it was their their heritage. Yeah, so for some reason, the program worked a little bit better for a couple variables. And I think it was the pressure to eat variable. So I think among the Hispanic participants, whether they were English or Spanish speaking, whether they took English or Spanish speaking classes, pressure to eat didn't work as well. Uh, the program didn't work in terms of reducing the pressure to eat. So I think that may be a cultural thing that, that we maybe couldn't change as easily with our program, although it certainly worked for them, it just didn't work as well. Um, so yeah, so what, but the idea is that we really wanna, you know, we, we haven't done it with any um, middle-class populations. And I, I think it would work just as well with them, maybe even better, um, just because of the education level of middle-class populations. So yeah, we haven't really, you know, we'd like to try it with, with everybody. <laughs> well, I want to thank oh, you so differently. Sorry, we need measures of children's self eating self regulation. Yeah, I, I don't. We and obviously, um, we we wonder whether or not we did all this stuff with the kids. It's not clear that the child component necessarily contributed to the success of the program. I think that's a really important empirical question to ask because it took a tremendous amount of resources. We had to two educators in each classroom. We had to provide babysitting. Um, and, you know, we had we had a team of people conduct this intervention each time. And if, if it works just as well to just do something with the moms and not involve the kids, that might be a much more 
uh, resource effective way to, to implement this program. So I think that's another big question. That would be an interesting study to compare seeds with just the parent session alone and just the child session alone, maybe three different conditions and see. That would be really interesting. So you'd have one group that's just parents receiving it and then another group that's parents and children plus your control group maybe? Yeah, and then maybe even a child only session. You can even try that. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Although, I mean, the, we, we considered like, because this would be neat. That's why we developed, you know, Cheryl was talking about the other grant. Uh, we developed this online version of the program for parents because in that way you could take like something like Head Start and do a program in, with the kids in Head Start and then have the parents do an online version of the thing. So you don't have to have- the online version work just as well as the in-person version. Oh, yeah. That's good to hear. Did you see, um, and I don't know if you're in at the at this point in the process yet. Did you see better retention with the online program or better retention with the in-person program? We haven't really uh, looked. Good. Well, I was looking at that the other day, and I can't remember. <laughs> I think actually, well, what was really interesting was that what we did was we paired, we did this project with Susan Baker um, in Colorado and some other folks. And who and she has a program called Eating Smart Being Active, which is a nutrition education program that's used in FNEP programs around the country. And so we did it in these FNEP classes. And so everyone got the Eating Smart Being Active program. Then we had three conditions. People either got um, just the Eating Smart Being Active alone, which is just nutrition education. And then another group got the seeds information in terms of the feeding material in person. And another group got, you know, plus Eating Smart Being Active. And then the other group got Eating Smart Me Actors plus the online version. So what was added was feeding information, online, in-person, or none. Um, and I think what we found, and I don't quote me on this, but I think we had better retention in Eating Smart Being Active coming to the in-person stuff if they were getting the online stuff afterwards, I, I think. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I, I can't really remember. So that's a really good question. It's, we're working on a paper right now looking at some of those these issues. And that, that's why it's <laughs> complimentary. But I, I think because there's some evidence that, you know, that people do better with these online programs. But then this is a low-income population. So the question is, although they, and we did a mobile app because almost, you know, like 70, about 80% of low-income folks still have access to a smartphone. So, um yeah, so we'll see, but that's a really good question. came at an opportune time as we were finishing up the data on the second grant because of COVID. And so yeah. we were doing 12-month follow-ups right as COVID hit. And But I, I think what is nice about this program, the online, is we're going to implement that in Texas with other ethnic groups, as Tom said, but we're going to do the online, which is, you know, saves resources and helps reach a larger number of people. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. I just want to thank you both for taking your time and sharing your expertise with us. Um, it's been great to learn through your process with this article. And um, I look forward to seeing future papers on your work as well. So at this point, I can pass it back to Rachel. Yes, thank you very much for the presentation. Um, just a reminder, there's a short survey when I close the webinar. Your feedback's appreciated. Uh, watch for an email follow-up probably Wednesday of this week with the recording and the CEU certificate from today. And then just a reminder, Journal Club continues next Monday. Uh, so please be sure to go to the SNEB website uh, to register for Journal Club. Um, and then we've also added uh, several other webinars are getting scheduled for March and April. So keep an eye on the calendar. 
Uh, and then SCB is continuing to plan our in-person uh, conference in Atlanta at the end of July. Uh, there will be virtual op opportunities to participate. Um, we are finalizing conference programming and should have registration open the first week of April. So stay tuned. Very good. We'll see you back online soon. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, thank you.